Once again, and welcome to Office Hours with Professor Mitchell. I am the aforementioned Professor Bradley Mitchell. I am doing a podcast today specifically for my Psych 101 students who are about to take their first exam. So sit back and relax. I'm going to review chapters one through four very quickly so that you're prepared for exam number one. So we're going to go back a few weeks and start with chapter one, which is basically a systems chapter. It's a history and systems chapter. Um, And so I really want you to just basically know the the fundamental beginnings of psychology. You'll need to know the definition of psychology, which is the science of mental processes and behaviors. Uh, I hope that you have that one date embedded in your head deeply, 1879, but a little bit more to that. That's the beginning of psychology or the first psychological laboratory. The name associated with that is Wilhelm Wundt, or if you're hooked on phonics, it's Wilhelm Wundt. Uh, He was an early adopter of what we now call structuralism. And his counterpart, who we consider to be the first American psychologist, is William James. And James was the father of functionalism, which later became uh, a deviation called behaviorism. And then the third name we really need to know here is Sigmund Freud, and there's a lot of things I'm sure you remember from lecture, but primarily I want you to know that anything that is psychodynamic or psychoanalytic, we contribute that to Freud. The next section of chapter one that we talked about was all about research and the research methods by which psychology is considered a science. So there were four basic types of research that we talked about, three of which were correlational in their methodology. And what correlation means is that as one factor goes up or down, the other factor will go up or down. So a positive correlation would be if a factor A goes up, then factor B goes up, and that's a positive correlation. Or we have to jump back into simple mathematics. If factor A goes down, and factor B goes down, two negatives make a positive, so that's also a positive correlation. And a negative correlation, just like uh, when we're learning how to multiply, a negative times a positive equals a negative, so as one goes up, the other goes down, that's a negative correlation, okay? And there are three major types of correlational research. The first is the observation, which is basically just observing, watching, taking notes, seeing what happens in real time. And there are two different types. There's the natural observation and the laboratory observation. And it really doesn't matter where it takes place. The thing to remember is, in a laboratory observation, the subjects have a a feeling or they know they're being observed. Where in a natural observation, they don't know they're being observed. So in a natural observation, we get to see how people act naturally. But in a laboratory observation, we get to see what happens if we introduce a variable. The second type of research is the survey. And this is pretty simple. It's basically just getting information and sometimes opinions from people. Surveys are great because you can get a lot of information about a lot of people in a short amount of time. However, there are some difficulties with it because essentially people don't necessarily have to tell you the truth. So sometimes the survey is not gonna give you all the information that you want or need in a certain situation. And then finally, after we have the observation and we have the survey, we have the case study. And the case study is really just taking a look at a small group of people or a group of people that we would not want to observe in real time. So maybe we want to look at people historically. 
and see what type of behaviors associated with different types of, of factors. Or maybe it's a group of people that we can't ethically or safely observe in real time, like serial killers. Probably don't want to do a natural observation on them because A, it's kind of unethical to watch them do what they do, but B, it's also not real safe for you. So these are the three big types of correlational research that we have. The next section of chapter one that we talked about was all about research and the research methods by which psychology is considered a science. So there were four basic types of research that we talked about, three of which were correlational in their methodology. And what correlation means is that as one factor goes up or down, the other factor will go up or down. So a positive correlation would be if a factor A goes up, then factor B goes up, and that's a positive correlation. Or we have to jump back into simple mathematics. If factor A goes down and factor B goes down, two negatives make a positive, so that's also a positive correlation. And a negative correlation, just like uh, when we're learning how to multiply, a negative times a positive equals a negative. So as one goes up, the other goes down, that's a negative correlation, okay? And there are three major types of correlational research. The first is the observation, which is basically just observing, watching, taking notes, seeing what happens in real time. And there are two different types. There's the natural observation and the laboratory observation. And it really doesn't matter where it takes place. The thing to remember is, in a laboratory observation, the subjects have a, a feeling or they know they're being observed. Where in a natural observation, they don't know they're being observed. So in a natural observation, we get to see how people act naturally. But in a laboratory observation, we get to see what happens if we introduce a variable. The second type of research is the survey. And this is pretty simple. It's basically just getting information and sometimes opinions from people. Surveys are great because you can get a lot of information about a lot of people in a short amount of time. However, there are some difficulties with it because essentially people don't necessarily have to tell you the truth. So sometimes the survey is not gonna give you all the information that you want or need in a certain situation. And then finally, we have to, we have the observation and we have the survey, we have the case study. And the case study is really just taking a look at a small group of people or a group of people that we would not want to observe in real time. So maybe we want to look at people historically and see what type of behaviors associated with different types of uh, factors. Or maybe it's a group of people that we can't ethically or safely observe in real time, like serial killers probably don't want to do a natural observation on them because A, it's kind of unethical to watch them do what they do, but B, it's also not real safe for you. So these are the three big types of correlational research that we have. The fourth and probably the most important type of research in all of science is the experiment. And the experiment is really important because of all the different types of research we have in psychology, the experiment is the only one that can show us a cause and effect relationship. We do this by taking a sample of the population or just a small group of, from the big population who we're studying and we put them into two groups. One that is kept the same and one that has a variable in it to see if that variable affects change. And because if we hold everything else to be the same, then we can say that that one changed variable is the cause of the change in outcome.
Finally, I want to make sure that everybody remembers the biggest goals of psychology. There are four major goals of psychology as a science. They are to describe, explain, predict, and control. So if you just remember, describe, explain, predict, control, and what each of those means in the realm of psychology as a science, you should be okay with chapter one. And now let's move on to chapter two. Chapter two was more about the anatomy and physiology of the brain. And so the major components that I want you to remember from this chapter are that we start out with this big idea known as the nervous system. And from the nervous system, we go down to the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. All in all, the nervous system is all about input and output from the outside world to the inside world, and then our inside world being able to interact with the outside world again. Okay, so the nervous system is comprised of the CNS and the PNS. The central nervous system is comprised of the brain and the spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system is everything that takes things from the outside world and brings it into the central nervous system. So we have two different types of neurons that are gonna communicate. We have afferent and efferent. A-F-F-E-R-T, afferent, and E, efferent. Afferent neurons are sensory neurons and they bring information into the central nervous system, while efferent neurons are more than motor neurons. And you can remember this by remembering that A comes before E. You have to sense something before you can respond to it. You can't respond to something until you know what you're responding to. So A comes before E, sensation comes before the response that the motor neurons will give you. is comprised of two hemispheres and four lobes. The left and right hemisphere correspond with your left and right side of the body. The four lobes of the brain are the frontal lobe, which reside in the front of the forehead, the temporal lobe, which is at the temple down to the ear, the parietal lobe, which is on top of the temporal lobe, and the occipital lobe, which is in the back of the head. brain is comprised of about a hundred billion neurons and these neurons communicate with each other through tiny little chemicals called neurotransmitters. Some examples of neurotransmitters would be dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, and oxytocin. These neurons communicate but never touch each other. So they communicate by sending neurotransmitters back and forth and if that neurotransmitter communicates with the next neuron or neurotransmitter receiver, it will send the message on. Because there are so many neurons in the human brain, it doesn't matter if some of these don't exactly click with each other because eventually the message will be passed on if it's appropriate. Each neuron has specific parts to it. So if you use your hand and arm as an example and spread your fingers out, your fingers would be the dendrites. The dendrites receive neurotransmitters from the preceding neuron that's sending information. Your palm would be the cell body or the soma. And inside of that would be the nucleus that contains most of the information for the cell body. Your arm would be the axon, the tail where the information is passed along once the information is fired from the cell body covering your arm would be 
the glial cells, which we used to think simply just protected the axon because it was so flimsy, but we now know it contains information that helps us with things that are more reflexive and allows us to pass information on quicker. If you had fingers coming out the back of your shoulder where your arm ended, that would be the axon bodies or axon terminals that are going to send the information on from the preceding neuron. And now on to chapter three, sensation and perception. Sensation and perception are basically two sides of the same coin. Sensations are pieces of energy or chemicals that act on the human nervous system. So sensation is the process by which we get light waves hitting our eye and we start to interpret it. But it's not the process of interpreting it in the mind, that's perception. Perception is a very subjective experience, meaning that we are all going to see the same objective things with our sensations. We all hear the same sound of my voice, we all see the same things with light waves coming at us, we all smell the same things that are in the air, but how we interpret those things, whether they're good or bad or, or, or bright or dark, they're going to be subjective in nature. So perceptions are the, the subjective way in which we interpret sensations. When it comes to sensation and perception, we have a couple different terms that we need to be able to conquer. The first one is the absolute threshold. And the absolute threshold is the minimum amount of stimulus or the minimum amount of energy that you need to be able to perceive a sensation, okay? So if I turn on a radio and I turn it up to one click above zero, the perceptual difference is negligible. You basically, you can't tell the difference between zero and one. You probably can't tell the difference between zero and two, maybe even zero and three, but when I turn it up to four, you can hear very faintly the music that's coming out of the stereo. That means that the absolute threshold for sound using this very vague and arbitrary scale is four. Now normally we would use decibels or something that could actually be compared, but for this, just remember, the absolute threshold is the minimum amount of stimulation you need to notice that something is, is in existence. That doesn't mean that sound isn't in existence when it's at three or two. That just means that it's at a subliminal state. Subliminal, sub, below, meaning it's below the point at which we can perceive it. Sometimes those things actually do get in. So if I have the music at three where you can't consciously hear it, there's a possibility that you're subconsciously hearing it. It's coming into your ear. It's just your conscious mind can't make that interpretation, okay? So the absolute threshold is different from the just noticeable difference in this one way. The just noticeable difference doesn't start at zero. The absolute threshold starts at zero and says, at what point can I start hearing this sound? The just noticeable difference is, I'm gonna start at X, and so X plus what can I notice a difference? So if I have the thermostat set at 70, and I turn the thermostat up and somehow magically my room can instantly go from 70 to 72, if you don't notice that it's a little bit warmer, you haven't noticed the just noticeable difference. But if I turn from 70 to 74 and you do notice a difference, that would mean that four degrees is the just noticeable difference. Now quickly remember that everything works in magnitude here. If I hand you a dumbbell 
if I hand you a one pound dumbbell and a three pound dumbbell and you can tell the difference, that means that two pounds is the just noticeable difference of weight. But if I handed you a 30 pound dumbbell and a 32 pound dumbbell, you might not be able to tell the difference. So at, at 30 pounds, it may be 34 pounds, which would be a four pound difference. So as the weight goes up, you're gonna need more of it to notice a difference. Just like if I were to put uh, 100 pounds in your arm and 102 pounds in your arm, there's no way you're gonna be able to tell the difference. So it goes up as the magnitude of the stimuli goes up itself. The final pairing for this chapter is sensory adaptation versus habituation. And the two are essentially the exact same thing except for the way at which they go about achieving the goal. Sensory adaptation and habituation both lead for you to end up not noticing a certain sensation. But with habituation, it's completely cognitive. Habituation is where you, know, you don't notice the, the sensory input anymore because you've just gotten used to it and you've decided, your brain has decided to stop paying attention. There's background noise in the background of this um, audio recording, I'm assuming. You can probably hear some, uh, some wind noise or some engine noise. And after a while, you've kind of got it habituated to it. You stop noticing it. Or if I kept the background music the same the whole time, you would eventually just stop paying attention to it because it would, it would be kind of just background white noise. You cognitively have stopped thinking about it. Whereas with sensory adaptation, something has been present for a long enough time to where the sensation actually doesn't even get sent to the brain anymore. And the example we used during lecture was for people who get their tongue pierced. The first couple days they have their tongue pierced, they're constantly feeling it because the tongue is sending a neural impulse to the brain saying, there's something in here, there's something in here, there's something in here. But after a while, it just says, stop sending that information because we're not doing anything about it. And the difference is you can't get that sensation back like you can with habituation. If I tell you to think about the fact that you are or are not wearing socks right now, you, that's habituation, so I can feel down at my feet and I can think, yeah, there is something constricting my foot. But if I wore socks, if I wore the same socks every day for five years, first off, yikes, but secondly, I would probably become sensory adapted to it where I would simply stop being able to feel because the, the neural impulses had been going on for five years straight and it just shuts it down. So just remember the difference between these two is one is neurological and one is cognitive. Finally, we're into chapter four. We're gonna talk about consciousness. And the idea of consciousness really isn't that intriguing. Consciousness is our waking, uh, our waking cycle. It's how we are right now, hopefully, as you're listening to this, as maybe you're driving or walking or, or doing chores or studying, you are awake. But the other side of that is the altered state of consciousness. And that is when we're not awake. We're, we're doing something different cognitively. And normally we can see that through brain waves. If we hook somebody up to uh, an EEG machine, we'd be able to see different wave patterns when it comes to sleeping, when it comes to being intoxicated, when it comes to being hypnotized, when it comes to being bored, we would see different brain waves electronically. The most common altered state of consciousness is sleep. And we won't spend a lot of time talking about the fact that we don't know why we have to sleep. Just know that we really don't know why we have to sleep. But we do know we have to sleep. If we don't, we go through a lot of really bad cognitive things like sleep deprivation, where we become irritable and we can't really concentrate. 
We also might engage in things called microsleeps, and that's where basically our brain shuts us down for a very short time, which essentially just giving us a warning shot saying, hey, if you don't give me some good quality sleep pretty soon, I'm just gonna shut you down. There's a lot of different stages of sleep, and we categorize them into in-rim and rim. REM stands for rapid eye movement, and this is what we call paradoxical sleep, because our brain waves look almost like we're awake, but this is a very deep sleep for us. And so the way that we tend to go to sleep is we go from being awake, which would show beta waves if we were to hook you up to an EEG machine, to being kind of drowsy, which would take us to alpha waves, and then we would enter into sleep. And the pattern that we go through with sleep is stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, stage three, stage two, stage one, REM and then one, two, three, four, three, two, one, rim. One, two, three, four, three, two, one, rim. So we go through cycles. In stage one, we start to see theta waves, and that's the indication that we are actually asleep. However, in stage one, we're just barely asleep, and sometimes we'll wake ourselves up with a jerk, and that's called a hypnic jerk. And we'll report seeing you know, flashes of dreams or, or really long dreams, even though it was only chronologically a very short amount of time, and those are called hypnagogic images. Once we enter into stage two, we're much deeper into sleep. And we can recognize this by looking at our heart rate, which starts to go down, our breathing rate, which starts to go down, and our core body temperature starts to decrease as well. So we're going into a sleep mode. Three and four are very similar in the respect that we are deep asleep at that point. We have some of our dreams, but it's also very hard to wake us up. And then we go back to three, two, one, and we are in REM, where we see rapid eye movement, where the eye is darting around. But we also have this really weird... Uh, situation that happens called cataplexia. And what cataplexia is, is basically your, your major muscular, uh, your skeletal muscles go limp. They, they, they are unable to respond and you are unable to move. So if you see somebody who's asleep and you lift their arm and it falls down, that's a good indication that they are cataplectic and they are in REM sleep. What this helps us to do as a human is not act out our very vivid REM dreams. Because if people have something called REM sleep disturbance where they don't go cataplectic, they sometimes will act out their REM dreams and this can be very detrimental because they may actually run around and harm themselves. There's a specific type of sleep disorder called narcolepsy where an individual falls asleep without any warning and for most people who have narcolepsy, it's it's very debilitating because they will enter directly into REM sleep. So if I were standing up in front of the class doing a lecture and I had narcolepsy, not only might I fall asleep out of nowhere, but I would go cataplectic and I would just kind of fall because I would lose all my muscle tone and uh, it could be very catastrophic, especially if maybe I was driving or if I were running or walking or if I were doing something uh, in, in an unsafe position, this could be very, very detrimental. Finally, let's talk about mind altering or consciousness altering drugs. The term for consciousness-altering drugs is psychoactive drugs. They are active on the psyche. And we have four basic types of psychoactive drugs. We have stimulants, we have depressants, we have opioids or narcotics, and we also have psychoactive or psychedelic drugs. The stimulants and the depressants are basically just two sides of the same coin. The stimulants are going to increase the nervous system and these uh, depressants are going to decrease the nervous system. The psychedelics are going to create a almost pseudo-psychotic situation in which an individual will have hallucinations and delusions. And then the narcotics come from um, the Latin or Greek, and I apologize, I don't know the, which one it is, uh, but narcos, narcos for sleep. 
So these are things, opioids are going to put a person to sleep. They're going to be very much like a depressant, but they're going to shut down the nervous system rather than just uh, depress them a little bit. So that is a very, very brief review for exam number one. If you listen to this and everything sounded fresh and sounded like you could, you could conquer it with any types of questions, you're just fine. If there's some of the pieces where you need to go back because you weren't quite as sure about the answers or the, the definitions, those are the ones that you're going to want to spend some time with over the next couple of days. Please feel free to ask each other questions, um, study with each other because that's one of the best ways to learn is to help teach somebody a topic that you may be struggling with and as you talk it out you kind of get yourself grasped with it. So uh, one of the best ways to study is to pair up or get into a group and have each other uh, explain the different topics. If you have any questions please feel free to email me and good luck with your studying.